0: Hello everyone, this is Jason Jacobs and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dave Burt, the CEO and founder of Delta Terra Capital and the lead portfolio manager for Delta Terra Funds. Before founding Delta Terra, Dave was most recently a partner and portfolio manager at Wellington Management Company. Prior to Wellington, he built investment processes at Blue Mountain Capital, Alder Tree Capital, which was a 2006 startup he founded to bet against the mortgage credit bubble, BlackRock Financial Management, and State Street Research and Management. Dave began his career as a real estate economist at Property and Portfolio Research, Inc. After having a front row seat to the big short, Dave has identified that there's a similar opportunity in real estate where there's a big chunk of assets that aren't properly factoring in climate risk and are therefore short opportunities. Informed by advanced climate risk impact metrics, the fund provides asset owners and other investors with a cost-effective and timely solution for hedging against major value corrections in real estate markets. This is a fascinating discussion. We dig into the business opportunity here, what makes Dave so sure that this is the short opportunity that he thinks it is. We talk about the implications if he is wrong, the state of the state in terms of climate change and how to think about the problem, and also the ethics of essentially profiting on other people's peril. I think it's a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Dave Burt. Welcome to the show. Thanks
1: for having me, Jason.
0: Thanks for coming. This is a different kind of, of episode. It's, it's funny, the the My Climate Journey monthly newsletter that I sent out, it's almost like a fishing line. It's like you never know what it's going to drag in. And <laughs> yeah, I never thought I'd be talking to someone that's building a hedge fund. But the more that we chatted in our initial coffee, the more I thought, man, like this is, I mean, coming out from a different perspective, but but super relevant stuff. So excited to have you here to talk about it.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I think you're engaged in a, a pretty interesting journey. So happy to, to help out along the way.
0: Well, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting journey. It's an interesting time. I mean, there's just there's so much change that's on the horizon. I think some of which is is visible on the surface, and some of which, the more you dig in, the more it just becomes clear is is coming, whether you know whether it's visible to the naked eye or not. And so. It's an interesting intellectual exercise to go through and learn about this stuff, but it's also just important. Or at least it feels that way to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me it's a fascinating changing world. Then we're we're witnessing some really interesting, potentially really impactful changes to the environment through climate change. And I think, you know, you're you're it's it's the right time to get involved with it. You know, if there's there's people who have been looking at this for 20 years, but at this point, it's really starting to hit home to people on a day-to-day basis a lot more broadly. And, you know, I think it's it's people are a lot more willing to engage in potentially impactful exercises that could result in a better outcome for the, the world and humankind. So I'm, I'm in the midst of, of a similar journey. So happy to share some of the details of that with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it'd be, it'd be great to understand what you're up to, and it'd be great to understand how you got here. So pick one of those and, and, <laughs> sure. and tell me about it, and then we'll hit the other one next.
1: Sure. Well, what I'm up to right now you know, is I am just launched an investment research and management firm called Delta Terra Capital. The objective of the firm is to help investors and asset owners protect themselves against the financial risks presented by climate change. This is really a continuation of a 20-year career that I have looking at real estate investments and related securities as an institutional investor. So specifically, I've been building investment processes to help identify the intrinsic values of different types of investments, such that I can buy cheap securities for clients and sell rich securities and hopefully generate alpha to help them accomplish their investment objectives. So historically, my clients and former roles and I've built investment processes at big firms, BlackRock, Blue Mountain Capital is a relatively large hedge fund manager in New York. And the last nine years, I've been at Wellington Management right here in Boston, essentially deploying these Opportunity identification and risk management processes, again, on on behalf of large capital institutions like insurance companies, pension funds, mutual funds, and of course, hedge funds.
0: And if you go into Google and and you Google David Burt, big short, what comes up and,
1: and why does that come up? Sure. Well, it will probably come up that there's a few mentions of my name in the Michael Lewis book, The Big Short. And that comes up because I was fairly intimately involved in the creation and development of a market for credit default swaps on mortgage-backed securities back in 2004 through 2008 period. So essentially, my journey started at a small firm called Property and Portfolio Research. And this was following MIT education in math and economics, which is probably where I picked up my appreciation for science. I grew up on Martha's Vineyard, which is probably where I picked up my appreciation for the environment. <laughs> you said when we were chatting before, we started recording 13th generation? Is 13th that- generation Islander. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, so we have a a lot to lose in terms of my family history if coastal regions get really poorly impacted by this phenomena. So that is, again, probably the the genesis of, of some of my appreciation for the environment. And I've always been interested in science and its application to understanding problems of the world, problems for society. I think my focus on financial services is really a result of that, is wanting to blend my interest in science and mathematical acumen with real world problems in culture and society. So economics is really, to me, the the expression of that you know what are how is capital moving about to make lives better or worse for people and being involved in institutional investing is is really the penultimate expression of that i suppose so how i got to the the big short days I started out doing research and advisory work in real estate markets, a firm called Property and Portfolio Research. There, we developed forward-looking estimates for property cash flows in different markets and different property types. So we would project, for instance, the net operating income for office buildings in Seattle or cap rate projections for apartment buildings in Portland. That was sort of the widget of the firm. I took those and applied them to the different types of capital markets that were available for investment. And so the most complex of these and probably the most mathematical is an area of the financial markets called structured finance, which is essentially the process by which a group of small assets are packaged together. And then the cash flows or the results from those investments or those asset opportunities are pooled together and then redistributed based on a set of rules that help the investment to become more attractive to a broader variety of investors. So that's a complicated way of describing the market, but it's known as the mortgage-backed securities market is, is the biggest of the securitized markets. And structured finance usually pertains to things where people aren't sure about either when they're going to get their money back which is typically what people think about and what are called agency mortgage backed securities which is the big mortgage market that's guaranteed by the agencies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the securities that you don't know either when you're going to get your money back cuz there is no you're not sure when borrowers are going to prepay their investments their loans And you're also not sure if you're going to get your money back because borrowers could default on their obligations. And that mortgage-backed securities market is known as structured finance. So that's where I really found my way in career, again, with my interest in mathematics and engineering. This was a really interesting place to sort of flex my expertise into understanding something that was really relevant in markets. And that took me to an area of the markets called commercial mortgage-backed securities, which was, again, the pooling of, of commercial loans into these structured finance obligations. One of my clients at the time was a firm called State Street Research and Management, again, right here in Boston. And they hired me to build out a similar process that I had developed for helping them to look at their commercial mortgage-backed securities risk in a new growing part of the market called subprime mortgages. So that's where that whole journey began. It was somewhat of a separate journey. There's a lot of parallels to what I'm up to now, because ultimately, my investigations into those markets revealed that there was a huge amount of mispricing related to essentially a big misincentives issue in the markets, which were people were getting paid essentially based on how much product got originated versus how well the origination ended up performing in the future. And so that ended up allowing for a lot of things to get created that probably shouldn't have. And so that was probably the biggest, the first big market-wide mispricing that I identified through my modeling work. And I, I did go off on my own following a brief stint at BlackRock who had purchased State Street Research and Management to try and build an investment advisor that could help protect financial institutions and investors and asset owners against a collapse in the mortgage credit bubble in two thousand six.
0: And I, I think what's coming in this story, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that is that after going through that experience and building those models to identify these mispriced assets, you've you, you just Mentioned briefly or alluded to that, that you're noticing similar as it relates to real estate and climate risk, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is a kind of continuation of this this process of trying to identify what impacts the value of these investments. And in the last three or four years, I've been incorporating projections for inclement weather events that are coming out of the scientific community. And we've got a much more robust toolkit for understanding the implications of Greenhouse gases on the probabilities of severe weather events, including sea level rise, driven flooding, storms, having you know, moving slower, having higher wind forces, la- larger precipitation amounts, as well as wildfires. All of these types of inclement events should weigh in to the valuation of a property. And when you're thinking about a property, you tend to think of, well, how much revenue can it generate? Or I guess in the in the case of a single family home, you're thinking of how much utility via shelter am I going to get out of this pro- this property. And on the other side of that, there's the costs associated with maintaining that property. So just by making some very brute force assumptions about how much those costs are likely to go up as a result of increasing severe weather events, you find that a large swath of real estate investments are mispriced. So again, that's that's the parallel to the the sort of big short story that I experienced 2005 through
0: 2008. And I definitely want to come around and talk about that. Before we do, one thing I've always wanted to know is, so before you started heading in this climate direction, just you look at your career to date, and you, you talked earlier about buying low, selling high, and generating alpha, right? And, yep. and that's essentially, I mean, there's a lot of complicated things that go into that, but that's kind of the, the primary duties and, and measurement of success, right? Absolutely. How does purpose fit, fit into that? What motivates someone to do that for a living?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, for me, it it was how do I, say, use my skills to the greatest degree of impact possible? And of course, there is some, some idea that if you find the best way to exercise your skills, then you'll also be rewarded with things like a strong career trajectory and compensation. So that's part of it. But it's also just day to day. You know, it's what I enjoy doing. These ultimately become big puzzles, and I'm a a puzzle solver.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I get that you want to be the master of your craft, and I get that it can be very lucrative if you're successful. Where does it fit in, in terms of the overall world? Does it, and I don't even want to talk, before we even get to the climate stuff, does does that whole mindset of buying low and selling high and generating alpha, I mean, and that whole system, does that make the world better?
1: It should, theoretically. Okay. So the the, the theory is that efficient markets are going to create an economy that serves its constituents better than inefficient markets. So uh, an easy way to describe this is is by describing that sector that I've focused most of my career on, securitization, in a little more detail, how it should impact society, which is that if you take a 1,000 mortgage loans – that may or may not default. And you try and get investments for those investment for those activities. So basically if borrowers want to borrow money, where are they going to get the money? It's going to be from institutions that need some sort of return on their investment. That return can be v- the return requirement can be very different depending on the institution. So you might have, say, a pension fund that has a very high degree of confidence in the total amount of money that's going to be represented in their liability to their stakeholders. So they can't take any risk of default, Mm -hmm. essentially because they know they're going to need that money to meet their obligations to various stakeholders. So they couldn't necessarily buy a pool of 1,000 mortgages that had some uncertain potential to pay off or not. But if these things are packaged in a structure whereby if there are any losses, those are absorbed by other stakeholders, you can create a tranche that fulfills the need of principal protection for that pension fund. And now there's a more efficient flow of capital into that mortgage pool. So now there's the whole amount of pension capital that's out there might be able to participate in this market by buying the AAA tranche of a securitization. So the theory there goes you have more capital coming into a market like that ultimately borrowing costs will become more efficient and essentially lower for the borrowing base out there.
0: So because the markets are moving towards more efficiency, it means that the cost of capital goes down, which ends up being a benefit to the greater
1: good? Absolutely. That is the theory.
0: So now talk about the, I mean, you mentioned that in recent years, your models have been moving in this direction of incorporating climate risk. How did that come about? What led you down that path to begin with?
1: Again, I'm always looking for, well, what's going to impact the cash flows of my investments? And I follow all I get a monthly tech review from MIT. I follow some of the publications that deal in environmental sciences and, and, and science more broadly. I always try to keep up to up to date with how our understanding of the world is changing from a scientific perspective. Again, I've been tuned into climate change for some time just because of my interest in the environment. Ultimately, it's it's gotten to the point where you now have available a lot of public data that can help frame that probable futures based on this new science. And those have really that that really, I would say the International Panel for Climate Change effort in 2014 was really a groundbreaking implementation of making data more publicly available. So essentially what they did is there there have been new simulation processes for describing these probability of increasing severe weather events in specific regions for some time. But this was the first real project where the IPCC essentially went to all the scientific groups, the modeling groups out there who are running these simulations that could make those predictions. And they actually took the 20 leading groups across the world and had them provide their projections for specific geographic regions along a specific set of dimensions, all in the same format. And so now you have this massive cache of data available to build into these investment models. So when that became available, I started trying to plug in again more of a sledgehammer so what delta terra has been doing is is refining this sledgehammer more to the type of scalpel scalpel type analysis that you might want to use in an investment analysis but that was really the breakthrough moment of okay this data is available why shouldn't i try to incorporate this very potentially very impactful cash flow theme into my investment analysis just as you know, I had been working on how likely are mall incomes to be inc- impacted by the change in foot traffic as a result of online retailing. That might be the kind of theme I might work on. Now, the this theme is how might cash flows be impacted for a coastal property based on. Insur- increasing insurance costs, increasing tax rates, increasing maintenance costs, increasing energy costs, et cetera.
0: Tell me about Delta Terra capital.
1: Sure. So again, it's uh, investing in, uh, in an investment research and management firm. Ultimately, I'd say our, you know, our goal is to help asset owners and investors protect themselves against climate change, the financial risks related to climate change, focused on real estate right now. It's what I know. It's, it's the models I've been building. I also have a pretty strong belief that until pricing around this theme becomes more rational in real estate markets, the will won't exist to put money towards what's known as transition risk or the move to a zero carbon world. That's where a lot of different investors in this space are focused. And I think that that tends to be because people would rather invest in things where they can see the upside. It's just like a natural bias for investors to want to invest in growth and not to invest in negative stories or to entertain negative stories and there's a lot of reasons for that but in any case my my thesis is that the transition that will happen that will allow investments in clean carbon you know clean energy technologies sustainable energy that those things won't work as investments until a lot more money gets allocated towards climate change mitigation. So actually changing the policies that would allow those investments to come to fruition. And I don't think that's going to happen until people start losing money as a result of the physical impacts of climate change. So we're focused on real estate investments. There's three potential contributions In the research and investing community that we could make. One is, we'll probably be a bit of a research widget, which is, again, measuring the impact of different climate change scenarios on investment intrinsic values. So, basically, to say in this bullish scenario for climate change, which unfortunately are still pretty negative at this point, here is the impact on a particular commercial office property's intrinsic value based on increasing costs. Here is the value impact on a tranche of a mortgage securitization based on that scenario. And then in this worst climate change scenario, here are the impacts on those two different investments.
0: And so would that be technology that then gets licensed?
1: Yeah, potentially. The firm has pivoted a little bit. Um, So initially, I had imagined that that would be the, the primary widget and that we would build sort of metric portals where investors could upload their portfolios and download metrics. And then I would work on what I would say would be the the second value add vertical of this business, which would be then helping pension funds, insurance companies, other investors reallocate in such a way that will optimize their outcomes against this particular theme. And ultimately, the reason it may be a permanent pivot is what I've found is there's actually a good number of climate services firms, I think is what they're being called broadly now, who are doing a lot of the initial steps that I would need to have the relevant tools I need to- So you think you can get off the shelf the stuff that you were planning to build? Some of it, yes, exactly. Get it off the shelf. And maybe even there there are, I would say i I'm uniquely suited to walk the last mile from these projections for inclement events and connecting them with the actual impact on capital markets. I don't think there's people doing that, but my hope has become more that, Perhaps I'll partner with one of these companies to make my models broadly available. You know, I'm just hoping that whoever I use to buy the scientific projections for climate change from will ultimately buy, rent, steal my financial models and make those available to the broader investing community through the information services type of business that they're used to running. And why do you want them to do that? Ultimately there's there's a couple mission elements to this business. The big one is I possess this understanding of how a theme like this might translate to the impact on different capital markets investments. I want to make that as broadly available as possible because the sooner that these markets reprice, the sooner capital will start flowing more like it should to opportunities that could help provide a better outcome for the world. So again, people aren't going to put as much money into clean energy as they would until they fully understand the impact of not doing it potentially on the risks of their, their other investments.
0: I'm going to try to parrot back what I think I heard just to test and make sure that, that I understand it. So, so you said there's essentially three buckets. There's the enabling people to better understand their risk and exposure levels. Then it's helping them to start to go about making change. And the third is actually not just showing them what they need to do, but giving them products that fulfill that. That's absolutely that right? correct, yeah. And the first piece, there's more off the shelf available than you thought. And so you're less focused on productizing that So are you more focused now on steps two and three?
1: Yeah, and and mostly just step three. And this is partly driven by a change in the fundamental data that I'm observing in real estate markets. So some of the first pieces of analysis that I've attempted to do is to say, are values, real estate values, being impacted in regions that are more exposed to this theme than others? And the initial answer I'm finding to that is yes. And it may be happening right now and fairly quickly. So the residential housing data and commercial data are, are both showing signs of pretty dramatic slowing specifically in appreciation. So appreciation levels for residential real estate are much lower than they should be given the current state of supply and demand. And that effect we're seeing is much more pronounced in the most, in the riskiest markets that are exposed to to climate change than in non-risky markets. What
0: are some examples of those risky markets?
1: Well, a lot of it is southeast coast. So the metropolitan statistical area that screens the worst is a city area called Gulfport, Mississippi, which is right down on the Gulf. And it lost almost a, a full year of GDP just as a result of Katrina was almost completely wiped out and has been getting hit time after time since then by almost every coastal storm. So that's something that's really impacted. And you're starting to see a lot of concern anecdotally in the local real estate rags and from a macro perspective based on some of the appreciation data for the area that indicate that it is starting to suffer as a result. So that's one. I mean, the, the other, the, the main areas that have been impacting Gulf Coast, Southeast Coast, those are both tropical storms and storm surge over the long term, sea level rise. Also, California, given the, the two years of extreme wildfire damage, that's starting to pop as some of those regions are having a lot of trouble getting insurance. And that's starting to impact real estate values in those areas
0: uh-huh and what's the thought are right? how many different types of products will you have and then how how concentrated will those products be in and, and in what way?
1: Well I have done again this this analysis and we don't have the time to go through really how it all works, but essentially the idea is to find the cheapest and the richest assets that are out there when this theme is considered. And unfortunately, there are no real cheap assets to be found against this theme because it's it's almost a outright negative theme. So there might be some economies that benefit from migration by being safe. But generally, I'm focused on the regions that are being impacted in a negative way based on costs. So I've applied my models to look at the various parts of the capital markets in real estate. And this is really looking at all the available investments that one might make across four quadrants. So public-private, debt and equity, and single-family and commercial, (laughs) and securitized. And ultimately, what I've found is the richest security type out there by far is a niche area of the mortgage credit markets called credit risk transfer. And it's the means by which the federal housing agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are protecting themselves against losses in the real estate market is by issuing bonds that are particularly sensitive to this theme. So, for instance, one of the securities I might short would be wiped out if the securitization that issued it or the the reference pool of loans that stood behind the the securitization being issued by the agency incurred 3% losses. And a typical pool that looked similar would have with, withstood about 4% losses in the 2007 to the 2012 period. It's that magnitude of event. I think it's going to look different this time around because it's not going to be about this big pull away of demand that you know, had happened as a result of mortgage credit bubble popping. It's going to be more of a regional story, but that can be just as impactful. And again, my early estimates suggest that that this is already beginning and is probably going to be coincidental with the next economic cycle, which I would imagine would be coming about, you know, in the next 12 to 36 months. It could be as soon as, you know, a year from now that that some of these trades start to perform. And so those are, those are probably the primary, the big real estate private equity firms.
0: So anyone with big real estate holdings at an institutional level yeah. that has exposure and wants some downside protection and is willing to give up a little bit of alpha in the overall portfolio to minimize the swings.
1: Yep, that's yeah. exactly right. And I mean, this is... You know the the typical structure of these trades look like you put up ten percent of capital against a hundred dollars of par, and if the securities default, you get a hundred bucks back. So you get ten times your initial capital back, which which is a fairly good risk reward trade-off for for this type of protection.
0: Investment. And, did you, and did you say there's a second type of of investor as well?
1: Yeah, so, you know, one of the big reasons I'm here is because I, as an investor, see this as the biggest mispricing issue in markets outright. So, even not as a hedge, I mean, this is a reality that needs to be repriced. So, this is pretty much any speculative investor that's looking for a big short, too, (laughs) right? I mean, Again, if it's it's not just that this is a hedge, but this is truly a mispriced asset class, as I believe, as a result of this theme. So this isn't, oh, maybe this will come to pass and therefore these securities are rich. The thesis is this is some level of this is going to come to pass. So these securities are currently rich. From that perspective, it doesn't have to be a hedge. Any speculative investor would be interested in that theme. And that tends to be more typical hedge fund investors. There's some overlap, right? Endowments, family offices, high net worth individuals. And actually the, the, the group that I've been most focused on initially of, of capital stores, and this, this actually relates to another mission component of the business are the climate change focused foundations. So there are certain individuals and groups that have foundations where they've decided that their investment returns are mostly going to be pivoted towards solving the climate change issue. And so that would be making investments from any returns that get generated by the capital store, taking that money and investing it into mitigation efforts, adaptation efforts, social response efforts. Those foundations, I think these this strategy makes a lot of sense for for a couple of reasons. One is it's very right-way risk. So if they spend some of their money to engage in these protection trades and it doesn't work, it probably means that they don't need as much to allocate towards mitigation, adaptation, and social response. Whereas if it does work, then they probably will need that money in a big way. So, you know, we call that right-way risk from the perspective that they have this mission objective. So that's been a focus, that group. And I'm also hoping that one of those... Types of entities or a collection of them could not just be LPs, but could be GPs. Because ultimately, I would like to give a share of any profits that get created by these investments and put them directly back into mitigation, adaptation, social response. Again, the things that are going to be desperately needed and could actually help to affect the the long-term outcome. And so that's that's sort of the second mission element. It's it's a little Robin Hood. It it gets a little it's a little counter to the objectives of the fund because we're trying to solve the issue that will create the returns. But ultimately, it's an issue of timing because the things we're betting against are already baked in, from my perspective.
0: And I mean, you had mentioned that. If the markets move towards efficient, it's better because once people lose their money, then it will unlock the money that needs to be spent on mitigation. So, does having a vehicle like this, or if there were a hundred X of vehicles like this, does that actually help accelerate that transition? Or, or I guess said another way, does that does that cause the pain to be felt sooner?
1: That's the hope. Ultimately, the, and and this is part of the reason for the pivot is I think the bubble may be bursting already. So we may be less needed for that first mission element of bringing awareness, popping the bubble, like you're, dis- like you're discussing, to start that more rational flow of capital towards mitigation. So that may be already happening without our help, but that is, that is a key element of the business strategy
0: yeah you know, i mean i I feel like the obvious thing the critics would say is, you know looking from a distance, it's like, okay, so you have this aha that there's a that there's a bunch of mispriced real estate and that it's going to tank for this subset that the model tells me that it that it will, and then there's a bunch of things one could do with that information, right they could go and they could go on an education campaign if you're a homeowner. Or an asset owner, a building owner in those areas, and say, "Yo, get out!" Right? Or you could do what you're doing, which is essentially trying to profit off the fall. Right? And so, I guess talk through that with me a little bit, just in terms of how you think about that and why that feels like the right thing for you to do now that you have been awoken with this piece of data that you think the that you know before
1: the market does. I think it's going to happen regardless. I do think the, the way to accelerate it, I, I think it's these institutional capital moves that are the tail that wags the dog. So I think you're going to get a lot more out of waking the investing public. So the people who are actually making decisions about where these vast sums of capital get allocated than doing local education campaigns not to be cynical, but just from my experience, if you really want policy to change, if you really want behaviors to change at a systemic level, you have to affect the, the, the capital. That's one piece of it. You know, are there other ways of doing it than being involved in the investing part of it, like actually profiting from a, the, the downturn? Yeah, I mean I think that's why I have this whole information services aspect of the business and I still hope to make that available as cheaply as possible so that we can establish impact from that. You know, if ultimately somebody is going to profit or it's not not necessarily, but by putting on the trades and making big profits when the sh- when the short opportunity comes to pass and then making sure that those profits, at least a significant share of them, get put into real impactful investments, I think that is probably the best thing that I could do with that information. I mean, that's going to be the the way that I can facilitate the most transfer of capital, again, beyond hopefully creating a richer information environment, but is actually making money by taking the other side of the trades and then reallocating those profits into forward-leaning causes. Mm
0: -hmm. And then I I guess the second thing that skeptics might say, and this is from a different angle, but it's just that that while there might be significant scientific consensus in human-caused global warming, there's still a whole lot unknown just in terms of how those symptoms will manifest, how much they'll manifest, over what time periods they'll manifest, where they'll manifest. And and so, I mean, given how much is unknown, how does one build a, a forward-looking model with any type of certainty?
1: Yeah, well, there's science and there's art. <laughs> um, and they, they come together in a complex system modeling project like this. Again, I, I feel like this is where I'm particularly well-suited to tackle that type of synthesis project. And so, you know, when I think about, well, what could I be doing to impact this theme that is really feels to me like anyone who can do anything should be doing something because the the long-term negative outcomes are just so difficult to imagine coming to pass for future generations that i think you got to do with with what you can you should do what you can and for me this is this is that contribution which is to focus that particular talent that i have which is really connecting the dots between capital and outcomes through these very complex systems in the best way i can such that you can make slightly better informed decisions and you know there is no crystal ball and that's really what my approach is, is bring all the data that's available to bear into making the best decisions that you can. Again, it's not a crystal ball, but you can't even begin to do intuitive synthesis and make better decisions without at least constructing a framework to understand how these systems play out. I mean, we there's, there's really four complex systems that need to be modeled. One is the relationship between greenhouse gas emissions and actual outcomes. Again, that's being done by the scientific community. And there's some really good information services firms out there tackling that problem. Two is given those outcomes, how do those costs end up landing in different real estate pieces of real estate, property types, specific addresses, regions. That's very complex as well. And again, some of these firms are are starting to think about that. I think there are some sort of market dynamics that I could add to that puzzle. The third system is how do these cost impacts translate into actual asset value increases or decreases. That's something I know how to do a lot. (laughs) I've been doing it for 20 years. And again, none of these are exact sciences, but trying to bring rigorous science to a problem that involves making assumptions is still a worthwhile endeavor, in my opinion. And the fourth model is, given this knowledge or this awareness, at least, of how asset values are going to be impacted, what should that do? What is that likely to do to various aspects of the capital markets? So again, mortgage-backed securities, private equity investments in commercial properties, REITs, et cetera. So that's another area. So those last two I have exactly the experience and the skill to do as best of a job as as one can and so that's what I'm trying to do
0: and how much do you think about just the the broader climate fight and I, I mean I know you mentioned that that the it's almost counter to the incentives of the fund to to want to see climate change solved expediently or at least under control as as best as we can but I mean, to the extent that you've thought about it, what are the big levers you know, beyond the ones that we've talked about to help bring that about and to just kind of get a handle on it as a species?
1: I mean, ultimately, there really has to be some policy overhauls. And so government has to be involved. So there's a huge amount that can be done in, in terms of just people working towards a better government attention to these problems. And so that's a lot of politics and advocacy stuff that I don't know anything about. <laughs> I think there's a lot that can be done in technology. Any
0: thoughts as it relates to what type of policy should be put in place? Or is that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we we have some good, we, the, the Green New Deal, we got Paris Accord, there's global things like Paris Accord, there's Green New Deal, people are talking about here, you know, as much trying to get decision makers on the policy side, focused on those types of frameworks, as anyone can do as an individual, Individual. I mean, right down to just calling your local congress people and telling them that you care. I think that's, you know, that that could probably be impactful. There's a lot on the technology side that needs to happen and there's potentially some transitional technologies that could come about that could help a lot carbon capture technologies for instance. I mean the the thing is is this theme is going to be impactful to everyone and it's going to impact every say professional track that someone could be on you know it's going to affect demand costs in in pretty much every every job function that that one could think about so i think i mean the way that i've approached this is well what do i do best and what can i do at the margin given my experience and expertise and skill set and you're going to find some way of incorporating this theme if you look deep enough.
0: Mm-hmm. The next question, I mean, I'm, I'm almost asking this with your 13th generation Martha's Vineyard hat on versus your <laughs> sure. Delta Terra hat. But if if you had a big pot of money, say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on the climate fight, mm-hmm. where would you put it? How would you allocate it?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I haven't gotten that
0: far yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, in the discussion today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that you would have just because it, it seems like that's not. And this is not a judgment. It's just not your area of
1: focus. Right? No, no, yeah. it, it isn't. I mean, if I had to take a gut shot, you know. Uh yeah, I'm interested in in carbon markets. I'm interested in market solutions to problems like this. So, but then again, I, I, I don't know how you best influence, what really needs to happen is is the institutions, there needs to be kind of short circuits in the institutional, the incentives, problems that are driving an inappropriate level of attention being paid to this phenomena. So what that basically is, is there's a lot of people who are in seats that... If they do entertain the theme and they embrace it and they try and do something about it, it negatively impacts their business going forward. So the obvious folks like that are people in the petrocarbon business and you know the oil industry. And then that industry is also very entrenched in policy and governments. And so you know, how do you change that system? That's something I, I wish if, if there was a way that you could just pay to <laughs> have that fixed, that would probably be the, the most impactful thing that one could do. Again, I, I think by allowing markets to do what they should by making information, by, by fighting the fight with information to combat the disinformation that's being presented by these poorly incented market players. You know, that's that's something I'm doing, but you know, to the extent that people could put more money into into things that make that apparent and even combat it outright. I'm not sure how that gets done, but ultimately it's it's regulations, I suppose, that force people to do things that might not be best for their personal gain and and outcome, but are completely important to the the outcome of of the whole
0: so have you identified other short opportunities or mispriced situations of magnitude beyond the one that you've chosen to focus on
1: yeah i mean there's a lot this this particular one i'm focused on is just the any short can be difficult because it comes down to timing oftentimes right in in the The amount of time you can withstand sort of paying or missing out or on some sort of upside opportunity that can be that can take you out of a trade before it's been fulfilled. So that's that's the biggest problem with any of these types of trades. I mean, sure, you could short AHR, American Homes for Rent, or any of the other buy to rent equity REITs or you could short commercial REITs that's that those are that probably has that risk embedded in it but that could be very very expensive if things continue to be okay for a couple more years if if this this the rationalization of these costs get pushed out for Different reasons for another two years. One of those trades could be very, very painful. So the reason I'm I'm really focused on the one I'm focused on is it's a cheap way of doing it, which adds to your staying power. But yeah, there's a bunch of stuff out there. Municipal bond market is is interesting, but a lot of these, a lot of the asset classes that you would want to short are difficult to short. (laughs) So.
0: I almost feel like I should ask you a different question. I mean, typically what I ask guests is, you know, what advice do you have for people that are concerned about this problem and want to find a way to help? I, I, I feel like in your case, it's almost like if someone's listening and they, they think the shit's going to hit the fan and they want to capitalize, where should they look? What advice do you have for them? It feels weird saying uh, it, but it, yeah. I, mean, it's, I, I feel like it's more relevant.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, certainly. So those transition opportunities I talked about before—that those are good, right? I mean, investing in clean energy, not investing in carbon. I I think those—that that's the easiest one, and and that's really I would call that the transition trade, which would be long wind, short oil. That is going to come to pass at some point. Again, is it the most efficient expression? I don't know, but is it available to everyone? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of clean energy ETFs you can you can get a hold of. And I think those are probably, and, and maybe carbon credits. That's the other market that may take off that hasn't yet, but that it's another transition trade. I think other than that, it's probably don't invest in coastal real estate or, you know, real estate that's likely to be impacted by increasing insurance costs and tax rates.
0: Anything I didn't ask you or any parting words for listeners?
1: No, I I think we've gotten through a lot of it. I really appreciate the time and I would would encourage listeners to think about what they do best and see if there's a way that they can bring more focus to, to this theme.
0: Awesome. Well, Dave Bird, thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you.
1: All right. Thanks, Jason.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.